We are absolutely thrilled today to have an old friend who's helped us multiple times with our research in understanding some of the more complicated aspects of the sovereign debt market. But today, she has agreed to come and talk on our podcast, and that's thrilling. So our guest today is Lupin Rahman from PIMCO, who was formerly at the fund and understands the economics of this market better than almost anybody I have come across. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, so Lupin, the, the first question I want to ask you is super basic, although I think a lot of our questions will be very basic, but it's one that even though we've had this podcast on now for a couple of seasons, we've not really drilled down on. And that's the question of who lives in the universe of sovereign debt investors. And, you know, we, we have talked about the aggressive litigious hedge funds on occasion, the Elliots and the Aureliuses. And we've also on occasion talked about quote unquote, real money investors. But my sense is that there are a lot of other types of institutions and individuals involved and that maybe this differs across the type of sovereign that issues debt. So if you would be so kind as to give us the very ba basic bare bones of who lives in this market and maybe even their, their different incentives and preferences that can help set the stage for the rest of our conversation. Absolutely, happy to do that. So let's, let's just talk about um, just the size of the market to start with. So if you think about the, the global fixed income market um, just being uh, under $130 trillion in size, about 64 trillion of that, of that market is sovereign bonds. Uh, and these are bonds both denominated in local currency and external currency. Out of that 63, uh, 64 trillion, um, essentially you have the space dominated by three main issuers, issuers like the United States, um, China and Japan. And then the remaining is really divided up between the, the smaller developed markets and uh, emerging markets. So this, the scope for ownership of this market is extremely broad. And as you mentioned, Mitu, it really depends on um, the type of market that you're looking at to decipher who is actually invested in those, in those particular names. If you're looking at very large liquid markets like the US, Japan, and uh, in the Eurozone, really it's the institutional investors like central banks pension funds, insurance companies that are the key holders of those debt. When you're looking at emerging markets, you see a lot, lot of more differentiation in terms of the asset owner side. Um, and essentially, even now, I would say the bulk of the emerging market and frontier market debt is owned by um, 
investors that are institutional in nature that want to take a bit more risk in terms of their portfolios. And so this includes typically institutions like pension funds, um, insurance companies, um, in some cases, sovereign wealth funds, and increasingly central banks. So essentially, you see a, a domination of institutional investors across both the developed market and the emerging market space. In addition to that, you also have retail investors. So investors like you and I, who perhaps want to, to invest in um, some sovereign bonds through our 401ks, for example. And essentially, those groups of retail investors um, tend to focus on the investment grade component of uh, emerging market and sovereign space. The area where you really see hedge fund participation, or you have seen it in the past, is when sovereigns really come close to default um, or are in default, and the pricing of that debt becomes extremely cheap relative to the potential payout in uh, the case of a settlement or if the sovereign comes back on track. Um, and essentially, those are the names that um, those are the those are the uh, types of names that hedge fund or very distressed investors will be looking to invest in. However, when you look at the overall asset owner composition, I would say that percentage of uh, ownership is relatively small, and increasingly it is smaller uh, given where global yields are and where emerging market and frontier yields are. So outside of a few idiosyncratic names that are close to default, I would say that exposure by hedge fund or distressed investors is relatively small in the sovereign space. Lupin, that seems uh, as if it might be um, something of a change from 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, am I right in that perception? Uh, I just know that distressed debt funds um, commanded so much of the academic and policy attention for an extended period of time. And yet my sense is that their role, or at least their holdings and potential role have diminished. It, it, am I right in, in that sense? Or is that just a, a change in sort of the narrative of what we academics and, and folks in the policy sphere are, are talking about? So I think in terms of actual holdings, um, institutional owners have always been the, the largest owners of sovereign debt, but hedge funds have the, have the, um, the kind of the advantage, if you, if you want to call it that, of, of getting more attention um, because they're always in, in uh, investing when, when names become interesting or, or there's, a, there's a high profile um, element to it because the sovereign is in distress or there is a very binary type of trade. Um, I do think that even with that distinction in mind, that perhaps the, the kind of the noise around hedge fund um, exposures to emerging markets has diminished um, over the last couple of decades. And there are several reasons for that. You know, you mentioned um, uh, previously about uh, the, the sovereign debt restructuring um, institutional changes that have happened over the last couple of decades. And, and that has meant that things um, such as holdout clauses have become a lot harder um, to, to kind of um, invest on. Uh, in addition to that, just the, the wider hedge fund community um, has shrunk 
quite significantly relative to the size of institutional um, flows. And thirdly, uh, the, the, the point of related to lower real yields in emerging markets is a really important one because you know, across the investable space, distressed assets are still quite small um, relative to the overall size of, of the universe. So Lubin, if you don't mind us changing direction a little bit, one of the questions or sets of questions that we were hoping to ask you about relates to a uh, 2021 article that you co-authored with some colleagues, I believe uh, from PIMCO on ESG investing. And before we get into the article that has uh, fascinating results, I was hoping you could give us a sense of this, well, at least what we perceive of as a big increase in interest in social bonds or uh, better governance bonds or environmental bonds. And my sense always had been that the big investors, you know, they cared about returns and that, sure, it was fine if uh, they were buying the bonds of a democracy. Uh, they all liked that. But you know, if it was a kleptocrat who paid their coupons, that was okay too. They, the, it was all about the bottom line. But has something changed fundamentally? So I, I, I do think that there has been a shift in the mindset of asset owners when it comes to investing. Uh, and this goes beyond the, the sovereign space. This is across both the fixed income and equity space. Um, and partly this is due to a confluence of um, various factors. Um, primarily, there is the, a generational shift in attitudes, particularly as it pertains to climate change. Um, and you know, there are many reasons for, for that, but um, I think asset owners are responding to that shift. Secondly, regulation has really caught up in terms of thinking about the, the downside risks that may come about. Again, much more closely related to environmental factors and, and climate change vulnerability, but also beyond that to um, social, uh, social related risks and governance risks. So looking at minimum labor standards, for example, um, there have been some very high profile media cases during the pandemic of companies um, that were found violating pandemic rules. And, you know, you, you saw huge drops in, in their share prices as a result of that. So, um, you know, there is a, a greater focus just from the regulatory perspective on ESG elements. Um, and that has meant that asset managers and asset owners have also needed to build out their frameworks for understanding and measuring those risks. And then thirdly, I would say, you know, the, the attention and focus on ESG um, has come about because of um, the, the very high profile incidences that we're seeing across the world in terms of climate risks coming uh, a lot sooner. I think previously to the last, say, five years, there was a view that climate change was a long term problem and we could perhaps we had some run rate uh, in run room to, to address those issues. But, you know, with with the California fires, the fires in uh, Australia, 
um, some very high profile shifts in terms of environmental policies that we've seen in places like Brazil, all of those have meant have made asset owners a lot more concerned about these risks and being able to incorporate them uh, much more clearly within investment strategies. So there has been a shift in my mind, and you are seeing that shift um, followed not only by um, asset owners asking asset managers to keep up to pace with regulation and monitoring ESG risks, but also with increasing inflows into ESG-oriented strategies. Uh, and you know, you've seen that in the fixed income world um, over the last couple of years quite, quite distinctly, um, where the increase in AUM of ESG-oriented strategies have increased um, quite significantly, sometimes several times over, over a very short period of time. Um, and to, to focus on that a bit more, I think the important thing to note is some of the larger asset managers, including PIMCO, are focusing on integrating ESG considerations across um, many different uh, asset classes, not just um, corporate corporate credit, which is essentially the focus that has been there historically. I wanted to follow up with a, a question. I guess it might be um, might be two two related questions um, about the sort of shift in perceptions and interest in. ESG investing. And it seems to me that part of the question is whether there's been a similar shift or whether there's been progress made in dealing with questions of verifiability. I know one of the criticisms I often see, though I don't feel very competent to evaluate it, but I often see the sort of greenwashing criticism or the the notion that the environmental or related commitments are essentially non-verifiable. And I'm wondering what progress has been made uh, on that front, if you feel there has been any. And then the, the, the slightly related question is there are, there are um, it seems that there needs to be some convergence on what counts. And I'm thinking of a, of a climate-related investment in particular. So it seems like we don't even agree on whether wood pellets, for instance, are a green investment or not a green investment. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious about how that kind of uncertainty about what counts as green plays into those verifiability questions. Yeah, I think those are great questions. And they, they are questions that um, investors are grappling with because this area is very much a frontier area for investing. Um, so to some extent, asset managers have had to build out uh, some of these frameworks ahead of the regulators. So when it comes to factors like, you know, what counts as green, the EU taxonomy um, is one of the key areas that, that um, would be able to guide um, the, the kind of the investor space on that. And, you know, there has been a significant amount of progress done uh, in, in terms of categorizations, even though there are some large questions that remain. Um, for example, uh, the treatment of nuclear for, uh, as, as, a, as a case in point. But you know, going beyond that, I think that we shouldn't um, forget that we have made a huge amount of progress in terms of having frameworks um, that are uh, more or less endorsed by, uh, by industry bodies. And, 
there, there is an evolving element to, to this universe of instruments that are coming out. The green bond space has grown quite significantly. And I would say that the structures around what is, what is defined as a green bond has, have been developed. Um, and you've had organizations like the ICMA really coming out with frameworks and what we should be looking for in terms of frameworks. Um, to try and avoid greenwashing. But the, the issue of veri verification and um, potential greenwashing is an important one, particularly given ESG investors are, are very sensitive and concerned about the, the left tail risk. Um, and for that reason, we at PIMCO essentially use our own green bond scanner. And that scanner applies not just to green bonds, but to any ESG related instrument that is issued. So we actually go through the documentation, we go through the issuer's commitments um, and essentially decide whether we would define a, an instrument as being um, a green social or sustainability linked bond by our standards. Um, and so I, I do think it's really important for investment managers to, to do that homework in-house because it really reduces the risk of uh, greenwashing. And for asset owners, it is important for them to understand each asset manager's frameworks to, to see what they are comfortable with in terms of the level of conservativeness that each manager applies. Now, in addition to, to just thinking about that, I think that you, know, you do have um, inter- industry bodies that are coming up uh, and monitoring frameworks that are that are being put in place. The IADB, for example, has a database which is looking at um, allowing issuers upload their monitoring reports, their second party opinions and their frameworks. And these are gradually being developed. That is specifically focused on Latin America. Um, but essentially we would we would hope to see similar um, ventures across uh, the globe so that you know, the full universe of ESG instruments are, is, is eventually covered. So, Lupin, if, if I may, you had brought up the matter of going through the documentation carefully, and it's actually one of the things about PIMCO that's quite different, at least that I've noticed over the years that Mark and I have been studying this market, that you guys... Uh, are unusual in caring a lot about the documentation and about the contract terms. Whereas many investors who I talk to, they only start looking at the documentation when the country's in crisis and a restructuring is uh, in, in, on the horizon. But um, with respect to ESG investments and social and green bonds, I have noticed, and there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently by our friend uh, Matt Wirtz uh, about this, that issuers, at least sovereign issuers, have started putting into their risk disclosures the statements that goes roughly along the following lines, which is that, yes, we promise to do all these good things, but if we don't do them, you cannot, you have no legal recourse against us. Now, I think Mark would, will tell us that you can't uh, disavow legal liability for failing to meet 
the obligations you promised to meet by just putting it into the risk disclosures. But it does seem, it just gives me the heebie-jeebies that they're putting in these uh, risk factor disclosures saying, you know, we may not do what you want. We would like your money, but uh, don't expect us to do what you want. Do those kinds of things worry you? You know, you raise a really good point. And I think that, you know, I would say that given that this is a new area in many ways, and there hasn't been standardization in the way that the, the original sovereign debt markets evolved through, particularly in emerging markets, there is a need to really look at the documentation um, very carefully, because ultimately that is what your legal right as an investor is. Um, you know, uh, whether whether a, a sovereign commits to anything in the roadshow doesn't really have any bearing unless it's it's part of the the, um, the paperwork. Um, so it is really important. And I think increasingly investors in the ESG sovereign space are looking into into the actual um, the actual uh, prospectuses in, in more detail. But, you know, I think that ultimately the challenge in the ESG space related to this is, you know, what recourse do you have as an investor that is different from your recourse as a plain vanilla sovereign investor? Um, and I think here is where, you know, things like built-in structures into the documentation like coupon step-ups or step-downs, and if, if it's a positive outcome, is, uh, is one way of trying to address some of these concerns, um, as well as having very tight language on use of proceeds. So, you know, when, when we're looking at some of the, the COVID-related bonds that came out last year, one of the things that concerned us was a lot of the use of proceeds language was very fungible. Um, so as opposed to when you have a green bond Typically, 100% of the use of proceeds will be towards identified green projects. Um, in some of the issuances that we saw last year, um, the so-called COVID-related expenditures were very much more fungible with general budgetary um, purpose use. So those types of details are important to look at. Um, and essentially, I think that you know, this, this is a space where we do have to be a lot more stringent in terms of asking for those um, those safeguards within the, the construct of the instrument in and of itself. Well, Lubin, let's take a short break if, um, if now seems like a good time. And then I, I wanted to follow up with one more question uh, about the ESG topic before we, before we move on, but let's take a short break. I'd wanted to ask you a question about the very interesting findings that you and your co-authors have in the, the paper that Me Too referenced earlier, which, which as I understand it, is sort of simplistically countries that score more highly on ESG metrics tend to see lower borrowing costs. And I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about what dynamic you think uh, accounts for that. I, I suppose it could be either or both of um, at least two explanations. One could be that this is something investors really care about, perhaps because they believe it um, you know, reduces default risk or something along those lines. Um, or maybe the causation runs the other way, and it's that countries that borrow more cheaply have more capacity to, to um, 
sort of engage in good governance or climate mitigation or things like that. So can you just say a bit more about the dynamic underlying those results? Absolutely, Mark. Um, so thank, thank you, first of all, for flagging that, that uh, piece and the, the results from it. But essentially what we wanted to, to get a handle on was whether incorporating ESG risks into sovereign investing actually uh, is an indicator of lower sovereign credit risk over time. Um, and essentially what we've tried to do is we've tried to use um, lagged ESG uh, indicators to, to get at this question of causation. So whether it is lower ESG spreads, lowest, lower ESG risks driving sovereign credit spreads or vice versa as your question question referred to. What we found is essentially even um, looking at contemporaneous ESG data, so data that is really six or three months ahead um, of time actually results in uh, a spread tightening for the universe of sovereigns that, that we looked at. And this was much more um, significant for the sovereign uh, space in emerging markets. And it was much more relevant for indicators that tried to capture governance risks. Now, you know, for, for investors in the emerging market space, this is not going to come as any surprise. I think for decades, particularly in the beginning part of the, the asset class, um, the way you essentially made uh, money in emerging markets was investing in sovereigns where you had a view on the political regime and whether there was going to be a change in the political regime. And, you know, a really good case of that is, um, you know, investing in Brazilian bonds just before Lula took power when the bond market had sold off significantly. And when he came into power, he uh, resulted in, in being quite a orthodox, at least from an economics perspective, um, orthodox president. So bond prices rallied quite significantly. So those types of factors would be, would be incorporated in the measures that try to get at governance and institutional quality and fiscal discipline, for example. Um, and that is essentially what, what the paper found, that even in the current era of quite rapid information dissemination, um, if you incorporate ESG uh, elements in your, in your risk parameters and in your assessment of your sovereign credit, that does uh, have a, a relationship with lower borrowing costs. Now, ultimately, um, you know, there, there is a, a, a case in point in terms of ESG factors becoming a lot more focused on environmental issues. And perhaps on that side, we didn't actually find a, a significant relationship between uh, environmental risk, whether it's transition or physical risk, with um, near-term uh, or cyclical credit spread tightening. And, and that is something that I would expect because we do think that those types of risk factors are much more longer term in terms of uh, the impact on sovereign credit. And so identification problems um, would, would make it harder to, to kind of get capture that type of relationship. Lupini, if, if I may, I was hoping to transition us a little bit to asking you about the current market conditions in the context of COVID and 
the huge debt stocks that many sovereigns seem to be accumulating and continue to build, especially in the emerging market segment of the world where COVID is continuing to cause immense harm. But uh, the specific question I have has to do with whether or not we should expect to see in the restructurings that come, let's say that you know some of these countries can't pay back the enormous debt stocks that they've accumulated, whether we will see the fund and the bank say, look, we want you to incorporate some ESG type adjustments domestically in order to get debt relief. And that could be partly justified by the fact that we've seen that both the fund and the bank and probably other international institutions have shown great enthusiasm for ESG matters. It's politically beneficial. The Biden administration seems to be on board. And also that so many of the big investment homes seem quite enthusiastic about pushing ESG. So I haven't yet seen it being incorporated into restructurings, although maybe in Belize, uh, but I'm just, I'm trying to envision what the future has for us and how, how what you guys find in your article might extend to the restructuring context. So I think that, you know, the, this issue of very high indebtedness in the sovereign space is um, really quite distinct in terms of um, which countries you're looking at. Um, and the solutions and the potential risks are very distinct. So, you know, if we take a step back and just look at the increase in debt uh, as, a, as, as in absolute terms or even as, a, as in terms of ratios, um, the largest increases have come from the developed markets in China. Um, so we shouldn't ignore that. Um, so so the, the risks that are associated with that are much more different than those that are associated with emerging markets or frontier markets. Um, and really the risks that we're seeing are longer term inflation expectations, um, essentially uh, the focus that, that we have on trying to prevent deflation in the DMs versus in EMs, where the focus really since the pandemic has been one of liquidity versus thinking about the solvency risks. And I think as we come out of the pandemic over the next couple of years, the liquidity risk, as in the ability to repay debt, is going to be the bulk of the focus uh, for investors um, and also IFIs versus the solvency issue um, outside of one or two very specific countries. Um, and, you know, beyond that, I think, you know, it becomes a, a very country specific discussion. So places like Ethiopia, for example, where you may see uh, restructuring for bondholders, even though the, the, the kind of debt stack is much more focused on IFIs. Um, so I think that you know, the, the issues are going to be different. I do think it is dangerous in many ways to not think about the solvency issue, particularly given that investors have to be 
by the nature of the illiquidity of um, some of the emerging market names, long-term holders in this asset class. Um, and so not keeping a, an eye on sustainability considerations down the road, and the down the road could be two to three years out, and so not, not, not that long-term in nature, um, is, is quite uh, an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, I, so I, I do share some of your concerns about the, the rise in debt, um, which uh, has to some extent been offset by just lower real rates and much more easier financing conditions for many of these names. Um, going to this issue of whether ESG could be a requirement in debt restructurings, I mean, we saw the interesting case in Ecuador. Um, you know, I'd like to think of it much more in two separate buckets, mainly because I'd like to see fewer debt restructurings in the sovereign space. Um, and so I think that there is a lot that can be done to encourage capital flows towards ESG-oriented projects or financing the SDGs in emerging markets that can tap into a separate bucket of asset owner uh, flows. Um, and, you know, I think that the lowest hanging fruit really is to just start putting together green social and sustainability frameworks um, for each sovereign, which sovereigns, many sovereigns have started to do, but requires quite a lot of technical capacity to do so. So um, here, I think the IFIs can play quite an important role. And once that is set up, um, you can actually tap under that framework, external and local bond issuance. Um, and you know, we've seen quite a, quite a, a, a variation in the way sovereigns are coming to this market. You know, Chile has got a, a framework under, the, under all three uh, types of instruments. And they have started issuing both on the external and local side with the view of ramping up all their issuance ultimately under these formats versus, say, in Egypt that issued a green bond that was linked to a renewables target uh, and renewables project. Um, and essentially, that is kind of like a ring fence type of uh, project financing. But I think that's where I would uh, like to see the market moving towards rather than um, it being just a, a kind of an outcome of, of debt restructurings. This um, sort of discussion of COVID and the potential link to restructurings sort of links in my mind to where you started us, Lupin, with this discussion of who inhabits the investor market. And my sense is that the world is more multipolar in terms of official lenders as well, and that there's been a lot of, sort of concern, I guess, about how to coordinate the response to, to debt distress. And, and one of the things Mitu and I have been talking about on and off this podcast a bunch is the G20's common framework for, um, for debt relief, which is, is, as I understand it, in part about China and Chinese lenders, um, but also about the need for coordination between official and private sector lenders. And I'm, I'm wondering if you feel that the difficulties or the importance of mounting a coordinated reaction in cases of debt distress, if, if those difficulties have gotten greater. And if, if you um, have thoughts that you're willing to share, if you have a sense of whether the G20's common framework 
is kind of a, represents some kind of meaningful policy shift? Yeah, I think those are, you know, the, those are really important questions, especially given that, um, you know, institutions uh, like the World Bank and some of the other development organizations are now much smaller in terms of overall lending uh, relative to some bilateral groups like, say, the Chinese or, or the US. So I think thinking about how um, both official bilateral and private sector creditors coordinate um, during periods of um, shock or sovereign distress um, are important themes to, to think about. Um, you know, I'm not sure whether there is an actual solution in terms of, um, you know, how that coordination should take place, just given that, um, you know, we've seen very distinct responses from, from China versus um, other parts of the Paris Club and, and the G20 group. Um, I do think it is going to have to be a case-by-case -case, um, situation, and hopefully we don't get a synchronized shock um, anytime soon, uh, like we did in 2020. Um, but ultimately, I think that um, there is a there is a, a extent of um, of uh, flux in terms of how the IFIs are thinking about their interventions in uh, frontier markets or, or the LICs. Um, versus what is sustainable for them in terms of debt, how they want to, to stack up versus bilateral lenders like China that are out of the scope of the Paris Club, and to what extent um, they need to preserve market access to private capital versus allowing or asking countries to, to have a haircut across the, the kind of investment structure. Um, I think those questions are still in flux. I don't think there has been a significant amount of clarity on that. So Lupin, um, we have used up a great deal of your time already, but I, I don't want us to end without asking you some really basic economics questions that I confess I don't understand. Economics and particularly macroeconomics have always perplexed me, perhaps the reason why I, I struggled so much in graduate school and went to law school. But they seem, these questions seem really important to understand what's going to happen in the market. And two very basic questions that I have here from my reading of the financial press have to do with Concerns about inflation rising, uh, concerns that I, I believe people like Larry Summers have had, that inflation will rise and uh, the markets will seize up, and uh, concerns about the Western governments, particularly the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank, putting the brakes on QE and that causing easy borrowing by many emerging market countries to seize up. If those two concerns, which I suspect are related, if, if, they, event, um, if they eventuate, should we expect to see another sudden stop like we saw in March of 2020 or is it likely to be something slower? I'm not even sure if this is a question that 
can be answered, but I'm guessing that economists like you think a lot about this question. Well, I think that the question is a good one, and it's one that um, you know the, the markets have been grappling with since the beginning of QE. Um, also unprecedented in our, in our times, just in terms of the scope and scale. I do think that um, you know, the, the concerns on uh, inflation and potentially deflation um, have been have kind of switched. And I think that you know, if you take a, a long-term view of how to get out of significant amounts of debt, um, as we see in the developed world, um, there, are, there are only a few options of how to do that. Um, and uh, inflating one's way out when you are, uh, you know, most of the debt is in local currency seems to be a, a reasonable way to do it. But of course, the history of Japan has shown that that's extremely difficult to do um, at very high debt levels. So um, I think that the quen- the question on inflation versus deflation is still out there. And this is barring the near-term increase in inflation that we're likely to see. Uh, and we have been seeing because of the, the kind of um, the emergence from lockdown. Um, and that, that kind of inflation hump is something that we're likely to see both across developed and emerging markets, just because of the dynamics of um, service sector and supply pressures uh, that are coming about together with the increase in commodity prices. Um, but you know, when it comes to this question of the wall of money and sudden stop for emerging markets, there is always a risk that there are going to be bouts of um, shortages in dollar liquidity, just given the very easy global conditions that we've had um, since 2009. I do think, though, that a lot of the the kind of softer, weaker hands in emerging markets have been shaken out. Uh, Firstly, by the 2013 taper tantrum, and uh, then after that in 2014-15 during the oil price drop. Uh, I think a lot of the big investors in EM are those long-term institutional investors. Um, who recognize that actually in the fixed income world, there are only two sectors where you are getting real rates. Um, That is emerging markets and portions of the high yield uh, investable universe. So very small markets in the context of the overall fixed income market. So I don't worry about a sudden stop of capital to EM as a whole. I do think that if you have a withdrawal from um, QE, it is going to be a gradual withdrawal, um, similar to what we saw uh, over the previous Fed cycle as well. Just, uh, you know, the Fed and ECB and, uh, you know, any of the larger central banks that have extended QE are going to essentially put the put uh, the brakes on in a very gradual fashion, first of all, stepping off the accelerator and then slowly breaking and then moving gears uh, down as they do that. Um, so they're able to kind of adjust if they see significant increase in market volatility. Um, you know, that said, I think emerging markets, frontier markets, many of those countries um, have evolved over the last um, over the last decade and a half. And a big part of that evolution has been a slow growth in their onshore capital markets and onshore savings. Um, And if you look at emerging markets that have been able to sustain periods of volatility well, 
it's been those countries where you've had that onshore savings to act as a counter-cyclical buffer to uh, global capital flows. Um, so, you know, whether it requires a change in the pension fund regulations or uh, it just means that, uh, you know, there, there is a greater incentive because of higher yields for local institutions to invest in their own sovereign debt versus um, foreign sovereign debt. Um, I think those factors are, are important. And, you know, long term, that, that is what I would like to see a lot of the frontier emerging markets focusing on, how to increase their local savings um, so that ultimately they that acts as your actual cushion, not just FX reserves, but savings under institutions like pension funds, social security institutions, insurance mandates, and what have you. Well, Lupin, thank you so much for, for joining us. We've taken up a bunch of your time. I can't tell you how excited me too and I were when we... Um, uh, got you to agree to come on. Um, we really, really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise and look forward to many conversations in the future. Likewise, thank you so much to, to you and uh, meet you for the invitation.